0: Welcome to Tom Bradford's Torah class, an in-depth Old Testament Bible study that's brought to you from a Hebrew Roots perspective. This week's lesson is week number two, Joshua, Preparation, number two. Well, we begin our second week of preparation for studying the book of Joshua by discussing a subject... That is key to our understanding, really, of just who God is and that in his name, in various titles that we encounter in the Bible, we find his character. Allow me to remind you that what we are doing last week, this week and next week is essentially reviewing the Torah before we transition to the first book of the former prophets Joshua and we're accomplishing this by following the history of the establishment of a set apart people group called Israel in fact i would argue that the entire old testament the tanakh uses the history of Israel as the motif and the means that the lord employed to establish his law his laws and his principles on this earth which led to the enactment of his justice system and subsequently acted as the path to redemption that mankind so desperately needs. We began and ended our first week of preparation around the life of Abraham. Now, before we proceed to his son, Isaac, a discussion of the many names, so-called names of God is appropriate because in the Bible we encounter a large variety and we need to understand why that is. The first thing to grasp is that in ancient cultures a name was far more than the simple identification that it amounts to today. The purpose for a name was to announce a person's reputation and his qualities. It was believed that a being, human or spiritual, embodied the attributes of his name and this is the sense we must always take it in the Bible and it applies very much to the Lord. Now it's fundamental for every Bible and history student to grasp that the Israelite culture sprang from Mesopotamian roots the same roots Abraham was born into and it would in no way be incorrect to characterize Noah and his family as the first Mesopotamians, at least after the flood. Mesopotamian culture are better than many Mesopotamian cultures were, as all other ancient civilizations, ever scientifically scrutinized based on a worship of multiple gods. And in the first few generations after Noah man perverted his relationship with God and he quickly abandoned the truth that Noah had taught that there is only one God. And the result was the birth of the notion of a spiritual unit filled with many gods, but there was one God that was above all the other gods. And the title that the Mesopotamians gave to this highest of the gods was the Il, I-L, which eventually morphed into the Hebrew El, E-L. And the highest God idea wasn't monotheism. Rather, it was that there was a God of gods, the El, that was preeminent over the other gods. And the Canaanite gods that Abraham and later the Israelites encountered in the land of Canaan were really only a continuation and a minor variation of the Nimrod-based Mesopotamian God system. And when Abraham arrived into the land of Canaan, he would not have found the Canaanite religious structure at all foreign to him. Rather, he would have been pretty familiar with it. When Abraham ratified God's covenant and became the first Hebrew, there is no evidence that Abraham's clan and his offspring instantly swore off all the gods of old in exchange for the one true God of the universe. Almighty God would have become simply another God in their hierarchy of gods. In fact, he would have been the L, the highest God replacing the former highest God. In fact, we get constant reminders in the Bible that the Hebrews forever struggled with idolatry. That is the worship of these other gods. Now, let me make this point again. Do not mistake the idea that Hebrew, that the Hebrews believed in Yehovah as meaning that they discarded one God for the other. Rather, they accepted a hybrid mixture of God Almighty along with some lesser gods that they fully believed existed. And if you'll keep that in mind when you're reading the Bible, then you'll have a much better context for understanding the thought processes of the Hebrews in those days. Now, throughout the Bible, we have prophets and the writers of the Holy Scriptures finding cause for anger and complaint against the Hebrews for their idolatry. And this is proof in and of itself of the prevalence of multiple god worship by the Israelites even at the same moment that they were supposedly pledging all of their allegiance to Yahweh. Now I don't think we ought to be overly harsh upon them. The Hebrews represented the first organized monotheistic religion, and that was a very radical notion in and of itself. The very concept of only one god ran against the confused nature of the human mind. Now, the Bible indicates that God's formal personal name is yud He vav Okay, And it's key to grasp that most other words for God up to then were not names as we think of names today but more they were fairly impersonal titles and of course they were characteristics of God. As a matter of fact, there's really no universal agreement as to the meaning of this particular name. Now theologians refer to those four Hebrew letters um, yud heh vav he, as the Tetragrammaton. Okay. Now of course Yud, hey, or y, Y-H-W-H or Y-H-V-H are English alphabet characters, which come from a pretty modern alphabet. In ancient Hebrew, these letters were yud Hey, vav Hey, that you see to the left here. And since, whether expressed in English or Hebrew, these letters or characters, if you'll notice, are all consonants. All right? So there's been a lot of speculation as to how we add the vowel sounds. And due to the extensive period of time that the Jews no law lo- have no longer pronounced his holy name, the transition, or tra- rather the tradition of exactly how to pronounce that name, has generally been lost. The commonly held pronunciation is Yahweh or Yahweh. I favor the pronunciation as Yehovah. As most recent evidence is that the word consisted of three syllables. Now, this was later Englishized into the word Jehovah, all right, that we commonly use as the name of God in the Western Church. Well, a long time later, around 500 BC, following the Babylonian exile of the Jewish people, uh, by the way, back up into Mesopotamia. We find that the Jews began using the title El-Ohim whenever referring to God or whenever those four letters, Yud-Heh-Vav-Heh, were encountered in the Scriptures. It's believed that El-Ohim was used in its place because it was a commonly understood word throughout the whole Middle Eastern region. And it meant God or gods and likely was even borrowed from the Babylonian culture that the Jews were exiled into. Remember, El, Il, was a native Mesopotamian word. And it's interesting that in reality, the term Elohim is plural. The I-M makes it plural. So in modern English, we wouldn't be incorrect in translating Elohim as God's plural. But you'd miss the point. Because in Hebrew grammar, the plural does not always mean more than one. It would, as in the case of Elohim, simply indicate preeminence or supreme greatness. Now we see many Bible, uh, rather, Hebrew titles of Yehovah beginning with the prefix El, don't we? Okay? Particularly in the earlier parts of the Bible. We see El Roi, God Sees Me, El Shaddai, God of the Mountain, El Elyon, God Most High. We see many more. And this is unmistakably a result of continuing Mesopotamian influence upon those Hebrews that eventually diminished as we move through the books of the Old Testament. And by the time of Alexander the Great, as the Greco-Roman era was dawning, which was around 300 BC, we find a tradition developing among the Jews against speaking the name of God out loud. And this prohibition exists today among the Orthodox and most Jews. The Talmud says straight away that this taboo about not speaking the name of God has nothing to do with the commandment to not take the Lord's name in vain. Rather, it was connected with a rather late developing custom of not speaking your own father's name because to do so was seen as disrespectful in your culture. That custom was then extrapolated out to mean that to verbalize the Father, the Father Creator's name was all the more disrespectful, even amounting to blasphemy. So from about the 3rd century BC on, we begin to see the usage of a new way to refer to the God of Israel in order to avoid that perceived blasphemy, and that was Adonai. And then from that era forward, Whenever Jews wanted to refer to God, they would start to use various terms, including Elohim or Hashem. They'd use Adonai that meant my Lord or my Master. And a few others. Interestingly, they would even do this when reading Scripture out loud, and they would encounter the letters Yud Hey Vav Hey. They would substitute one of the religiously, politically correct names or titles for God for those letters, but never would they verbalize his given Hebrew name, Yehoveh or Yahweh. Now, the early Gentile church fathers, of course, didn't agree with the Jews about avoiding saying God's name and in their desire to distance themselves from Judaism anyway, right, they began to once again use God's actual name. And as mentioned, Jehovah was later Englishized into Jehovah. All right, That is commonly used in the church today. But here's the thing we should understand. And like so many of the things I've brought before you, you've, many of you have heard this before, but... Sometimes you got to hear it a lot of times before it sinks in. More than 95 percent of the time that we encounter one of the titles for God in our Bibles, whether that word is in English as Lord, God, or so often in our complete Jewish Bible, Adonai. Right? In the original Hebrew, it was Yud Hey bav pay. God's formal, personal. Name. Let me say that in a different way. More than 9 out of 10 times that our Bibles say Lord or God or Adonai, the original Hebrew, as it was written, was Yehovah. God's formal name is actually written 6,000 times in the original Hebrew texts. But our modern translations reduce it to but a handful. All right, let's talk about Abraham's son, Isaac, now, with that understanding. The Bible doesn't tell us a whole lot about Isaac. He wanders around quite a bit, but not nearly to the extent of his father, Abraham. And his wandering, understand, is not as an aimless person, all right, but rather it was that he was an owner of substantial flocks and herds, and they needed fresh pasture land on a, on a regular basis, <coughs> on a seasonal basis. And he appears to have done very well for himself because, after all, he inherited his father's wealth. And God appears to Yesach, Isaac, as he did to his father, and he gives him the same promise that he gave to Abraham about fathering many nations. Thus, this alleviates any doubt that it was Isaac who would carry on the line of the covenant promise. Rivka, Rebekah, his wife, gives him twin sons, Esau and Yaakov, Jacob. And Esau being the first one out of the birth canal was the traditional and rightful heir to his father Isaac's wealth and authority. But years later, the Bible tells us um, in a rather casual and impulsive transaction that Esau sold his birthright to Jacob for the princely sum of a bowl of lentil soup. Actually, Selling a birthright was rather common at that time, but in this case, it was more indicative of Esau's lack of character. So we fast forward now. Isaac's about 135 years old. He's blind. He knows that his death is near, so he decides that it's time to give this customary blessing of the firstborn to his twin boys. But of course, that firstborn is who? Esau. And the effect of this blessing is to validate that particular son's right to inherit the bulk of the family's wealth and also to assume the, the leadership role of the of the family or the tribe. Well, Yitzhak, Isaac, he's, he's unaware of Esau's dumb deal with his brother, all right, and selling his birthright to his to his brother, and Esau doesn't want to inform him of it. So when Isaac instructs Esau to go out, go hunting, and bring in some fresh meat as part of the blessing meal, his brother Jacob and their mother, Rivka, devise a cunning plan. Then, The name Jacob turned out to be rather prophetic, Yaakov. For in Hebrew, it means heel-catcher. And the Bible tells us that when when Esau was born, Jacob was what? Hanging onto his heel. However, heel-catcher is not to be taken literally. It's an ancient Hebrew idiom that means deceiver or usurper to take something that belongs to somebody else by deception. And before Esau can return from his hunt. Jacob disguises himself as Esau. He goes into Isaac's tent. He dupes the nearly blind old Isaac into giving Jacob the firstborn blessing. Isaac believes that it's his firstborn son Esau that he is blessed. Now Esau returns from the hunt. He finds out what's transpired, and he's devastated. And he begs his father to change that blessing. His father can't do it. A blessing by tradition is irreversible for any reason, even deception. And Rivka knows her sons well, and she fears that upon Isaac's imminent death, Esau's going to kill Jacob for what he's done. And upon their mother's urging, Jacob quickly packs up and flees north, back up to Mesopotamia, all right, to his uncle Laban's. Well, in Haran of Mesopotamia, Jacob meets Rachel, one of Laban's daughters. And, they, of course, they meet at the family well. Now, remember, Laban is Jacob's uncle. Okay? It's his mother's brother. That's why she sent him to him. Well, of course, it's love at first sight for, for Jacob. And as a, as a fugitive, because he had nothing else to offer for her hand, Jacob agrees to seven years of servitude, bond servitude, to Laban in return for the right to marry Rachel. Well, these seven years pass, and in an sure sign to Jacob that what goes around comes around, during the marriage ceremony, Leah... Laban's oldest daughter is secretly switched out all right, for Rachel. By the time Jacob finds out, it's too late. Leah is now his wife. So on a promise for another seven years of service, Laban also gives Rachel to Jacob. Now make no mistake, Jacob was not some eager, foolish young man, that, as it's usually depicted in movies, Um, when he first married Leah and then Rachel. He was 84 years old. So the giving up of 14 years of his life for Rachel was pretty well thought out. Not only had Jacob received more than he'd originally bargained for, but his two wives, sisters, quarreled constantly for the next several years, which coincided, of course, with the growing hostility between Jacob and his father-in-law, Laban. And after completing 20 years of servitude for Laban, 14 for Rachel and Leah, 6 more for some livestock, Jacob, knowing something bad's about to happen, gathers up his family and they flee. And as they prepare to secretly depart, Rachel goes into the house and steals her father's household gods and takes them with her on their journey. Now, taking Laban's daughters and his grandchildren was one thing, but taking his gods was quite another. All right? So he forms a posse, all right? and he pursues and he catches up to Jacob and his family. Now, Rachel is a very clever and determined girl. And so even after a thorough search, Laban still can't find those missing gods that he's just certain she took. All right. Now the issue of the gods is very important to Laban because in that, era, in that era up in Mesopotamia, the person who possessed those family gods could claim legal inheritance to all the family's wealth and authority. Possessing her father's gods was Rachel's ticket to all her father owned when he passed away. Laban's sons wouldn't have been very happy about this. All right. So Jacob survives this whole ordeal by agreeing to Laban's demands that he take no other wives than the two he has, Rachel and Leah. Jacob now moves on. He returns south to Canaan and to face his brother. Esau, not really expecting to survive this family reunion. Now, nearing his destination, Jacob has this very odd but history-changing encounter with what some Bibles describe as an angel. Others say it's the Lord. And he finds himself in this all-night wrestling match. And, and the result of it all is a changed heart in Jacob as well as a permanent disability to go along with it but something else gets changed as well and this is the key God tells Yaakov Jacob that he now has a new name a new reputation and it is Israel and it's at this point in history and not before, that an identifiable people were created that God would call his own, the Israelites. And Jacob, while Jacob and his offspring and the descendants would all be rightfully called Israelites, only some of them would go on to be called Jews. And we'll talk about that in due time. Now, expecting the worst... Jacob, from here on called Israel, and by the way, you'll see the names bounced back and forth. Jacob, Israel, Jacob, Israel. You'll see him sometimes in the same sentence. Same person. He finally encounters (laughs) his twin brother Esau, who, as it turns out, has also changed. He's mellowed. And tears flow, and Israel offers gifts of reconciliation. To Esau. Esau is a very wealthy man now, and so he refuses the gifts. But Israel insists. They part in peace. But don't be fooled. This is just the Middle Eastern way of doing things. This little this little Kabuki dance that they got to go through here. All right. Oh, I don't want it. Oh, take it. Oh, I couldn't. Oh, please. Okay. That's how it's done. Well, Israel now heads for him which is by now a walled city-state in Canaan. And this is the same place where God told Abraham that this is the land he was going to give him and his descendants. But of course, in Abraham's time, Shechem was really little more than a watering hole. Israel purchases land for his clan from this local dignitary that the Bible declares is the king of Shechem. And he wants to settle down there. But, you see, being near a city brings mutual security. And the arrangement is always formalized in a pact resembling a treaty. And part of any agreement of this kind is that the residents of the city and the members of all the peoples who wish to live outside the city walls become allies, and they join each other in fending off marauders. But things go sour quickly when the king of Shechem's son rapes Israel's only daughter, Dinah. And her incensed brothers lead a raid of revenge that leaves many of the city dwellers dead. Israel is heartbroken over this evil and murderous act acts of his sons and he knows they can't stay so they pack up and they go to Bethel God appears to Israel with assurance that he the covenants that he had given to Abraham and to Isaac and now to Jacob those all remain intact but now Jacob's beloved wife Rachel for whom he gave 14 years of servitude to Mary, men would you do that? And he won't answer that question, will he? I don't blame him. Jacob dies giving birth to Israel's twelfth and last son, Ben Yamin, Benjamin. It's now about 1800 BC. Well, back up in Mesopotamia, a new Babylonian culture is becoming more powerful, and it's much more sophisticated. And and it's led by this continuing denomination of this culture called the Amorites. And, And using towers that they build, that we now call ziggurats, they start to chart the skies as astronomers. And down in Egypt, way to the south, the traditional Egyptian culture that has produced such an advanced civilization with pyramids and libraries and agriculture, fields watered with canals, science, all under very strong and effective central rule. This is all disintegrating. Foreigners now sit in the seat of Pharaoh. And not just any foreigners, Bedouin sheiks, Semites. These Bedouins weren't mindless barbarians. They very much enjoyed and adopted the Egyptian ways. They even adopted Egyptian names for themselves. But they were, by their nature, tribal, they were wanderers, and they did not understand how to establish and maintain a large centralized government. And the native Egyptians, of course, considered the rule of these Bedouins, these Semites, is almost unbearable. Therefore, these so-called Hyksos, rulers, were never able to unite Egypt the way that the Egyptian pharaohs before them had. And so Egypt went on a steady decline for about 150 years. Well, just a few years after Benjamin Benjamin was born and Rachel died, 17-year-old Joseph... Israel's openly favored son fell victim to a plot by his ten jealous and angry older brothers. So he was thrown into an empty water well, a cistern, and he was sold to a passing caravan of slave traders. And Joseph's brothers tell his father, Jacob, that he was killed by by a wild animal. Now, of course, Israel is devastated, and he blamed his sons for this obviously unaware of the truth, and he was going to grieve horribly and needlessly for several years to come. Well, this caravan winds its way south with Joseph aboard, where he was sold as a house slave to Potiphar, who was the chief steward to Pharaoh. And Joseph was a young, good-looking, and highly intelligent man, and he greatly impressed his master. But for several reasons, he soon found himself imprisoned, primarily as a result of false charges leveled against him by Potiphar's wife. And while Joseph languished away in prison, the Pharaoh began having these recurring nightmares. The Semite, Semite Pharaoh, not an Egyptian Pharaoh, and the local Egyptian wizards seemed unable. To decipher these disturbing dreams so Joseph was called upon to try and Pharaoh was so impressed by Joseph's accuracy that he promoted Joseph to second in command over all of Egypt Potiphar now worked for Joseph Joseph was now 30 years old he hasn't seen his family in 13 years meantime back up in Canaan where Jacob and his clan still resided, things weren't good. Another famine had taken hold of the land. Israel's tribe was in danger of, of not surviving. And news arrived that Egypt had, through the adept management of a foreigner, Joseph, somehow foreseen this famine and stockpiled abundant grain supplies. And reluctantly, Israel sent some of his sons to Egypt to try and purchase food. Now part of the reluctance he had was, was not so much, or, or rather was, was, primarily due to not wanting to lose another child. Because Israel had never recovered from the loss of his precious Joseph. And this fear undoubtedly came from the common knowledge among, uh, within the region that the poorest of Egyptian society who had run out of money and were no longer able to purchase grain from their government were selling themselves into bond servitude to the pharaoh in return for food for their families. Now this foreign pharaoh of a divided country was using the famine and Joseph's abilities to rebuild a slave labor force to satisfy his great ambitions. But God was going to use the situation to enable Israel's survival. But when Joseph finds out It's his brothers that have come asking to buy grain. He's crushed when they don't even recognize him. And he's hurt and he's angry. So he toys with them for a while. But he knows that any revenge that he might extract upon them would only serve to hurt his aged father. So he gives them grain. He sends word to Israel that all his family should come to Egypt where Joseph, from his position of influence and power, can assure their survival. Israel comes with his entire clan which now numbers 70 individuals not counting Joseph. Israel dies in Egypt a few years later but before he dies he pronounces a significant blessing upon Joseph's two male children Ephraim and Manasseh born by Joseph's Egyptian wife and this act is going to have enormous impact in the future of Israel and really for the entire world. This deathbed blessing, this cross-handed blessing, put Joseph's younger child, Ephraim, ahead of the older child, Manesha, for the purposes of inheritance. But this blessing also included the adoption of these two boys by Jacob so that they were no longer his grandchildren, but they were his own children, his own sons. This blessing had both immediate and prophetic, profoundly prophetic, effects. By adopting these children away from Joseph, and his Egyptian wife, their Egyptian mother, Ephraim and Manasseh were no longer considered Egyptians. They became Israelites. Now let's pause here to examine this section of the Bible that amounts to nothing less than prophetic dynamite. So open your Bibles to Genesis 48. I'm going to read this entire chapter to you. So profound is it. It Begins like this. A while later, someone told Joseph that his father was ill, and he took with him his two sons, Manasseh and Ephraim. And Yaakov was told, here comes your son, Joseph. So Israel gathered his strength, and he sat up in bed, and Jacob said to Joseph, El Shaddai appeared to me at Luz in the land of Canaan and blessed me saying to me I will make you fruitful and numerous I'll make of you a group of peoples I will give this land to your descendants to possess forever now your two sons Joseph your two sons who were born to you in the land of Egypt before I came to you in Egypt are mine Ephraim and Manasseh will be as much mine as Reuben and Simeon are the children born to you after them will be yours. But for purposes of inheritance, they're to be counted with their older brothers. Now, as for me, when I came from Padan, Rachel died suddenly as we were traveling through the land of Canaan, while we were still some distance from Ephrath. so I buried her there on the way to Ephrath. Then Israel noticed Yosef's sons and asked, Who are these? And Yosef answered his father, They are my sons whom God has given me here. And Jacob replied, I want you to bring them here to me so I can bless them. Now Israel's eyes were dim with age so that he couldn't see. And Joseph brought his sons near to him and he kissed them and he embraced them. And Israel said to Joseph, I never expected to see even you again. But now God has allowed me to see your children too. Joseph brought them out from between his legs and he prostrated himself on the ground. And Joseph took them both, Ephraim in his right hand towards Israel's left hand, Manasseh in his left hand towards Israel's right hand, and he brought them near to him. But Israel put out his right hand and he laid it on the head of the younger one, Ephraim, and put his left hand on the head of Manasseh. He intentionally crossed his hands, even though Manasseh was the firstborn. And then he blessed Joseph, the God in whose presence my fathers Abraham and Yitzhak live, the God who has been my own shepherd all my life on to unto this day, the angel who has rescued me from all harm. Bless these boys. May they remember who I am and what I stand for. And likewise my fathers, Abraham and Isaac, who they were, what they stood for, may they grow into teeming multitudes on this earth. And when Joseph saw that his father was laying his right hand on Ephraim's head, it displeased him, and he lifted up his father's hand to remove it from Ephraim's head, and he placed it instead on Manasseh's head. And Joseph said to his father, "Don't do it that way, my father. For, for this one is the firstborn. Put your right hand on his head." But his father refused, and he said, "I know that, my son. I know it. He too will become a people, and he will be great. Nevertheless." It's his younger brother that will be greater than he, and his descendants will grow into many nations. Then he added this blessing on them that day. Israel will speak of you in their own blessings by saying, May God make you like Ephraim and Manasseh. Thus he put Ephraim ahead of Manasseh. We'll end it there. What happened here? Well, as I mentioned earlier, the younger child of Joseph, Ephraim, was in essence given the firstborn blessing, or the double portion blessing, that normally should have gone to the older child, Manasseh. But on an even higher level, Jacob gave the birthright that by tradition should have gone to his own firstborn son, who was Reuben, instead to a grandson, Ephraim. Reuben was replaced with Joseph's son, Ephraim. Now, how can I know with complete certainty that this was all the result? All right. Listen to 1 Chronicles 5.1. Reuben, the firstborn of Israel, Jacob, for he was the firstborn, but because he defiled his father's bed, his birthright was given to the sons of Joseph, the son of Israel so that he, Reuben, is not enrolled in the genealogy according to the birthright. So here's something that we have to put into our minds and hold on to for a while. The firstborn rights of inheritance for Israel, Jacob's children, wind up not going to the rightful heir that would have been expected, Reuben, but instead those rights are given to Ephraim, who's actually a grandchild of Jacob. That is why Jacob adopted Ephraim and Manasseh away from Joseph so that Ephraim could become a son to Jacob rather than a grandson, and now he could legally give to Ephraim those firstborn blessings. Let's fast forward several hundred years into the future, to the time after the exodus from Egypt, and even further the time of King Solomon second king of Israel Solomon is a ruler over a united and powerful nation of Israel but that's going to change almost immediately after his death when uh, Solomon's son inherits the throne and right away turmoil and a civil war occur Israel becomes divided into two opposing kingdoms the Bible refers a number of ways to these two kingdoms all right. Most typically, it's the northern kingdom and the southern kingdom. Or as the kingdoms of Judah and of Israel. Judah the south, Israel in the north. But there's a problem. You see, the northern kingdom was not really called Israel at that time. Calling that kingdom Israel is a pretty recent redaction in our Bibles. The oldest manuscripts clearly call the northern kingdom Ephraim. By now, of the twelve original tribes of Judah, two of them, Judah and Ephraim, had become dominant and they ruled over the other ten. In biblical times, territories were generally named after the dominant tribe who occupied the area. So the two kingdoms that resulted from that civil war after Solomon's death were eventually called by the names of the two dominant tribes that controlled them. Ephraim in the north, Judah in the south. So we fast forward again, 200 more years. Judah has struggled to stay separate from its pagan neighbors and close to God. On the other hand, Ephraim's worked hard to uh, associate itself with its neighbors false gods. Assyria is now a a, a regional powerhouse and it attacks Ephraim. It empties it of its people. The people of Ephraim become scattered all over the Assyrian Empire and absorbed by the myriad of cultures of Asia to the point that the bulk of them lose their Hebrew identity. Ephraim is no longer a people belonging to God. The Bible even calls them a low ami, a no people. Ephraim doesn't even remember its heritage. Most members of the ten tribes that formed Ephraim had mixed their Hebrew genes with the Gentile people of the world. Ephraim became lost into the world of Gentiles, at least that's how it seemed. Until pretty recently. From Genesis uh, forward, Ephraim and Judah are referred to as the two houses of Israel. Ephraim is at times also referred to according to their father's name as the Joseph tribes. And we're going to find that designation for them popping up in the book of Joshua. Together, Ephraim and Judah make up what is called the whole house of Israel. That is, these two halves of Israel together make up all of Israel. Now, with that background, we fast forward again. Ezekiel writing about 130 years after Assyria conquered Ephraim, writes about a prophetic future for the people of Ephraim in the book of Ezekiel 37. Let's read that. Turn your Bibles to Ezekiel 37. If you have the complete Jewish Bible, it's page 691. With the hand of Adonai upon me, Adonai carried me out by his spirit and set me down in the middle of a valley and it was full of bones. He had me pass by all around them. There were so many bones lying in the valley, they were so dry. And he asked me, human being, can these bones live? And I answered, Adonai Elohim, only you know that. And he said to me, prophesy over these bones. Say to them, dry bones... Hear what Adonai has to say. To these bones, Adonai says, I'll make breath enter you and you'll live. I'll attach ligaments to you and make flesh grow on you. I'll cover you over with skin. I'll put breath in you. You will live. You will know that I'm Adonai. So I prophesied as ordered. And while I was prophesying, there was a noise, like a rattling sound, and the bones were coming together. Each bone in its proper place. And as I watched, ligaments grew on them and flesh appeared and skin covered them over, but there was no breath in them. So next he said to me, prophesy to the breath, prophesy human being, say to the breath that Adonai Elohim says, come from the four winds, breath, and breathe on these slain so that they can live. So I prophesied as ordered, and the breath came into them and they were alive. They stood up on their feet, a huge army. And then then he said to me, human being, these bones are the whole house of Israel. And they're saying, our bones have dried up, our hope is gone, we're completely cut off. Therefore prophesy, say to them that Adonai Elohim says, My people, I will open up your graves and make you get up out of your graves. I'll bring you back to the land of Israel. Then you'll know that I am Adonai. When I've opened your graves and made you get up out of your graves, my people, I will put my spirit in you. You will be alive. Then I'll place you in your own land, and you will know that I, Adonai Adonai have spoken, that I've done it. The word of Adonai came to me. You, human being, take one stick and write on it for Judah and those joined with him among the people of Israel. Now take another stick and write on it for Joseph, the stick of Ephraim, and all the house of Israel joined with him. Finally, bring them together into a single stick so that they become as one in your hand. And when the people ask you what all this means, tell them that Adonai Elohim says this. I will take the stick of Joseph, which is in the hand of Ephraim, together with the tribes of Israel who are joined with him, and put them together with the stick of Judah and make them a single stick so that they become one in my hand. The sticks in which you write are to be in your hand as they watch you. Then say to them that Adonai Elohim says, I will take the people of Israel from among all the nations where they've gone and gather them from every side and bring them back to their own land. I'll make them one nation in the land on the mountains of Israel. One king will be king for all of them. They'll no longer be two nations. They'll never again be divided into two kingdoms. They will never again defile themselves with their idols, their detestable things, or any of their transgressions, but I'll save them from all the places where they have been living and sinning, and I'll cleanse them so that they will be my people and I'll be their God. My servant David will be king over them, and all of them will have one shepherd. They'll live by my rulings. They'll keep and observe my regulations. They'll live in the land I gave to Jacob, my servant, where your ancestors lived. They will live there. They, their children, their grandchildren, forever. And David, my servant, will be their leader forever. I'll make a covenant of peace with them, an everlasting covenant. I will give to them, increase their numbers, set my sanctuary among them forever. My home will be with them. I'll be their God. They'll be my people. The nations will know that I am Adonai who sets Israel apart, as is holy, when my sanctuary is with them forever. Here we find what has come to be known today as the two-sticks prophecy. And it says that in the end times, in the latter days, Ephraim will be rejoined with Judah, the two halves. The two houses of Israel will once again be united and become a whole, a whole house of Israel. Now let that sink in for a minute. How could Ephraim, most of whom are so mixed with Gentiles, that they become Gentiles, millions of people who don't even know they have ancestral roots to the tribe of Ephraim, and some who do suspect it but have a hard time proving it, how are they going to be reunited with the tribe of Judah? Well who is Judah today? They're the Jews. They're the Jewish people. Jews are the members of the tribe of Judah who have been called that since the time of Babylon. But surprise! another of those prophetic dominoes has taken a tumble. We now know that while almost all of the Israelites who formed Ephraim joined themselves to Gentiles and have essentially become Gentiles, remnants of each of those ten tribes that formed Ephraim remained intact with an ingrained and uninterrupted memory of their Israelite heritage the largest one currently known, Manesha consists of almost two million people right? and the Israeli government has now recognized that these ten lost tribes aren't as lost as they thought okay but because Israel is officially a Jewish nation and because Jews are genetically in many cases, But more tribally connected to the tribe of Judah, what does Israel do with millions of members of these ten Israelite tribes who have been rediscovered and want to come home to join their Jewish brothers? The difficulty lies in the stance of those ten tribes that while they're Israel, they say, but we're not Jews, that they're not descendants of the tribe of Judah. They're descendants of the ten other Israelite tribes. Well, because the tradition grew that today's Jews are all that remained of Israel, most of the world's Jewish communities are confused and perplexed of just how to handle this new reality. Yet this second house of Israel has been found, and their reemergence was prophesied right here in Ezekiel 37. The Israeli government is now allowing them to return. And the church is completely unaware of it. We'll talk about this some more next week. Let's pray.